Hey, Joy and Conversation listeners. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment to share some amazing news. You may have noticed that we've released fewer episodes in recent months, but don't worry, Joy and Conversation isn't going anywhere. We're not fading away. In fact, we're undergoing a transformation in the full realization of our vision. We started with the vision to educate and to make Jewish history and culture more accessible and intriguing, especially to non-academic audiences. We wanted people to see Jewish people as pluralistic and dynamic, as a global people whose identities evolve, adapt, and take on different forms of expressiveness. Importantly, we wanted to focus on stories of Jewish joy. This is where humanity lies. This is where compassion is cultivated. And now, this mission, well, it's being taken to new heights. Joy in Conversation is now the audio experience of Project Mosaics. And Project Mosaics is our newly established 501c3 nonprofit. In the coming months and years, we'll continue to produce our podcast, but we'll also be developing resources for teaching and learning so that Jewish history, culture, identity, and arts can be more thoroughly integrated into classrooms. The podcast is for everyone, but Project Mosaics is focusing on what is taught in schools. Our form of education is grounded in multiculturalism and is culturally affirming. Project Mosaics exists to make Jewish history and culture more central to what is taught in our schools, because this history shouldn't remain unknown. So if you want to know more about our new nonprofit, Project Mosaics, visit the website, projectmosaics.org. And if you want to see this mission become a thriving and sustained reality in schools, if you want to see more Jewish history as part of an inclusive curriculum, consider donating. Your support is vital to making this work possible. So please visit projectmosaics.org. Tell a friend, tell a stranger, make a donation, and continue helping us take this vision and bring it into the world. Help Project Mosaics connect the pieces of Jewish history. Okay, so now on with the episode. The fundamental structure of human existence is encountering others in dialogical situation. The fundamental function of dialogue is trust. Buber is a utopian thinker. The the point of human life is to establish a world of peace, and that is to repair the world, and that is to fulfill God's covenant. And that's almost, I think, for Buber, the you know the cosmopolitan mission of Judaism. Buber was always very meditative. He was almost like a real moral conscience. That's Buber's sort of let's call it humanistic form of Zionism that always, I think, tries to make Israel a moral conscience for the world. Part of the debate is, is Zionism, as the attempt to establish a political homeland for Judaism, is that exactly what is best for Judaism as a religion? Part of the question of what kind of life is the life, what way of life is the life of being a Jew, is also 
how to be a Jew in the modern world. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's the mitzvah. There are some writers whose ideas penetrate so deeply into one's life, it becomes nearly impossible to remember a time before their influence. For me, there are a select few writers whose words and wisdom I carry wherever I go. I'm never too far removed from Hannah Arendt or Paulo Freire. Edward Said looms large, as does John Dewey and James Lowen. Yet within this constellation of intellectuals, Martin Buber stands alone. I remember when I first encountered Buber. I was in my early 20s, and I had just returned from a trip to Israel and the Palestinian West Bank. In the span of just a few weeks, I found myself staying with a Christian Palestinian family in Bethlehem and Jewish Israeli friends in Tel Aviv, Beersheba, and Haifa. During this trip, I was inside people's homes. They welcomed me and offered their space. In Bethlehem, I listened as people shared their stories of displacement and loss. They spoke with yearning and sorrow. But we also celebrated a birthday and played soccer together. We ate pistachio ice cream and stayed up late sitting on the balcony, talking to each other. We asked each other questions and listened attentively. Soon after, I was bouncing around with Jewish friends in Israel. They took me to the beach and we floated in the Mediterranean. We took day trips to the Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee. During this time, I was intentional about being in the land and encountering and experiencing connections with its various inhabitants. I was deliberate about not retreating into the familiar. Instead, I sought out dialogue. I wanted to demystify and rehumanize these communities. I hoped to move my heart and mind beyond my preconceptions beyond perceptions of otherness. When I returned home, I came across the book, A Land of Two Peoples, a collection of Buber's writings on questions of Judaism, humanism, Zionism, binationalism, and Jewish-Arab and Jewish-Palestinian relations. Some of the essays and letters housed in this volume dated back before World War I, when many of the existential questions Buber raised didn't yet have answers. There was no state of Israel. The shape of Zionism was still very much open to debate. The futures for Jews and Arabs in the land of Palestine was open to possibilities. Buber meditated on the spiritual renewal of Judaism through Zionism. He argued for the necessity of harmonious relations with Arabs. He warned against the excesses of political power and nationalism. There was hope for reciprocal relations in these writings, hope for a life for all people in the land. After reading the book, it left me with the question, who was this writer whose ideas seemed contrary to so much of what I assumed I'd encounter when sifting through the intellectual history of Zionism? What beliefs underpinned his views on Jewish-Arab relations as being ripe with constructive potential? So I sought out answers. I read more Buber. This was my first foray into the world of Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher whose ideas I found mystical, humane, and affirming of my own desire 
to seek out intimate relations with communities who often play the role of the other, who are often cast as alien, unknown, and exotic. I'd eventually read Ich und Du, or I and Thou in English, Buber's seminal work of philosophy. It changed the way I thought about Judaism, what it means to live a Jewish life, how Jewish values can permeate every instance of human connection. The more I read Buber, the more I gravitated towards a vision of Jewish life that was previously unknown to me. Years later, I'm humbled and in awe of just how much of Buber's thinking has been infused into my own life. I've dedicated my academic life to continuing to travel throughout the Middle East while studying Middle Eastern history. And this comes from a resolute commitment to seeing the other in the fullness that they're not often afforded. It's been about crossing borders, building bridges, and fostering compassion through sustained connection. I've invested my professional life in researching the ways that misunderstood and maligned populations are represented in history curriculum. I also study the discursive exchanges between students and teachers in classrooms. I'm curious about the dialogues between teachers and learners, and the dialogues that have the potential to reinforce otherness or dismantle it in classrooms. I also write curriculum focused on making schools more inclusive of the voices and narratives of communities who tend too often to be silenced and absent in our schools. In doing all of this, am I striving to live up to Buberian principles when I travel, study, research, and write? Have I sought out relationships and committed myself to a life of understanding because of the insights I gleaned from his books that I first encountered well over a decade ago? Even if Buber has influenced me, I still struggle with these ideas. I struggle with ideas that are at once inspirational and esoteric, illuminating and opaque. Whether it's Buber's ideas about Judaism or the need for a renewal of the Jewish spirit or the fulfillment of Jewish life through dialogue with the other, I'm at once taken in and still yet disoriented by Martin Buber. So I sought out someone who could help make sense of Buber and all of his assorted ideas. I spoke to Nicholas DeWarren, an associate professor of philosophy and Jewish studies at Penn State. So for anyone who's listening and thinking to themselves, who is Martin Buber? To anyone who's unsure of who this person was, we're going to be on this mystical ride into the mind of Martin Buber together. So let's listen to Nicholas DeWarren and learn about the life and mind and soul of this mystical man, Martin Buber. Yalla, let's learn together. Let's start in a logical place for people who might have no idea who Martin Buber was. His name, let alone the world of ideas surrounding his memory and legacy, may seem rather obscure. So who exactly was Martin Buber? Buber sort of difficult to introduce straightforwardly because he was a kind of polymath in his own way. Buber is undoubtedly one of the most important Jewish-German uh, philosopher of the 20th century. The qualification is that he's actually not German, but he was born in the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. So he's from a, a world that in one sense no longer exists 
after the First World War, but he is one of the most important philosophers who comes out of Europe, and especially out of Central Europe in the 20th century, who was formatively sort of influenced what is known as the Renaissance of Jewish culture. is a kind of rediscovery of traditional Jewish spiritual and cultural sources, as well as the attempt to affirm and define Jewish culture intellectually and spiritually. So he was quite important in the development and really is one of the sort of pioneers, one of the spokespersons of this Jewish Renaissance culturally that occurs before the First World War. He was also closely tied to the formation of the movement of Zionism because he had befriended Theodore Herzl a few years after Herzl had written his book on the Jewish state and was part of the Zionist movement until he had a falling out with Herzl over sort of personal and political differences. Importantly, sort of differences about the vision of Zionism, because Zionism was never kind of a uniform idea. And then he's also quite important in the development of philosophical thought. He publishes what is undoubtedly his most famous and principal philosophical work, a, a book called in German, Ich und Du, which means I and you, which really develops a kind of philosophy of dialogue. So the basic idea here is that the fundamental structure of human existence is dialogical. Not only that we are perpetually encountering others in the context of being spoken to and addressing them, but our relationship to nature is also somewhat dialogical, of course, not as fully dialogical as human beings. And then most importantly, because Buber is also a religious thinker, that our relationship to God is a dialogical relation. So trying to understand how human community, how genuine realization of what it is to be human is always involved in in a kind of uh, dialogical situation, in contrast to the ways in which we lose contact with others because of the inability to enter into genuine dialogue to really encounter others. When I think about Buber's relationship to Judaism, I associate his ideas with mysticism. So what spiritual traditions run through Buber's work? So he was very interested in Hasidicism and this sort of oral tradition of Hasidic wisdom um, of teachers. And so he really propagated that literature and, and translated it. And himself was a kind of um, teacher who tried to communicate that spiritual heritage. Hasidism and mysticism can feel far removed from daily life to some who aren't familiar with Jewish spiritual traditions. So what kinds of more temporal questions occupied Buber's life? He was quite important in debates about the identity of Israel. So when he emigrates to Palestine just before the Second World War, um, and then after the Second World War, really became a kind of spokesperson of a certain conception of what Israel should be, um, and really was committed to forming Israel as not simply the realization of a Jewish political homeland, but as an opportunity to create a new community, a new religious community that then would have relations with Arabs. So he was sort of a really progressive figure in the development of Jewish, Israeli, national, and religious identity after the Second World War. Buber's conception of Zionism focused extensively on Jewish-Arab relations. Did this emanate from his philosophical thinking? What was the basis for his vision of these communal relationships? One of the basic ideas that Buber tries to develop is that we only truly sort of become human and realize what it is to become human when we uh, are in encounters with others where we relate to others 
not in his language as something already objectified as an it, but we really encounter, in a sense, the mystery of the presence of the other as the other who I cannot possess, uh, who in a sense I do not know, but to whom I'm beholden. And so for him, this notion of dialogue was a way to establish a community of individuals that were able to realize what it is to be human in reciprocal encounters with other human beings. His attempt to develop a kind of binational Jewish-Arab state, he was part of an organization in the 20s called Brit Shalom, so Covenant of Peace. Uh, Albert Einstein was part of this group, so sort of leading Jewish intellectuals and, and, and figures of cultural authority who, like Buber, were committed to the idea that Zionism shouldn't just be the attempt to establish a political state, but the, the function and the importance of establishing a political state was as a way to establish a genuine religious community, a new form of society. So there was a kind of utopic dimension, and that new form of society would be dialogical and predicated on sort of openness of encounters with others. And of course, in the context of Palestine or the Palestinian uh, territories, which then became the state of Israel, that then would uh, critically involve a binational state, um, a way in which then both Jews and Arabs could live in a kind of dialogical community predicated on peace. He was involved already in the 20s in discussions among intellectuals within various Zionist sort of circles. Uh, about establishing this sort of relationship among Jewish people and Arab people, the Palestinians. And of course, after the Second World War, with the founding of Israel, he becomes really a very important spokesperson with a lot of moral authority, given his importance in the Renaissance and the reaffirmation of Judaism as a kind of vital cultural and religious force in the modern world. Buber espoused binationalism, and his Zionism had utopic elements running throughout it. Was this mainstream among Zionist thinkers? Was it a majority perspective, a minority perspective? What other shapes did Zionism take? Zionism as such was always a very fractious movement. I mean, there were many different views and, and, and profound disagreements within Zionist movement. And one of them is precisely between Buber and Herzl. So when Buber meets Theodor Herzl, Buber is very young. Herzl becomes very impressed by this younger sort of intellectual, but then very quickly uh, they had a falling out. Herzl's vision of Zionism wasn't really defined explicitly or even emphatically as a vehicle to achieve a religious renewal of Judaism. Whereas Buber really wanted Zionism to be a way to allow not only Jews to return to their homeland as a nation, but in that homeland to finally create the kind of community which ever since the diaspora they were not able to create. So part of the disagreement between Herzl and Buber is really about the relationship between the state of Israel or Jewish homeland as a political project and the state of Israel, the Jewish homeland, as an opportunity to reestablish really a new form of community. A new vision of community. Buber's philosophy and his idea of a binational form of Zionism based on deep and sustained relations between Jews and Arabs was about forming ways of interacting that broke out of the constraints of modern life where we often don't see people or experience them fully or humanely. So let's dwell on this concept, binationalism, 
because it is unlike other forms of nationalism, which can be much more antagonistic towards outsiders. There's something rather compassionate about this vision of nationalism that's about binding rather than separating different communities. In what historical context did Buber help usher in binationalism into the world? Buber's vision of sort of um, binational Arab-Israeli state, which would fulfill the imperative that he thought was important for uh, the Jewish people to have a homeland, to reclaim their ancestral homeland, I think that was also influenced by his experience coming out of Central Europe, because, you know, what really defines his experience coming out of Central Europe is that it's a multicultural empire. And so he was able to see the way in which you had different forms of Jewish spiritual life, both in Hasidic communities, uh, in in Eastern European communities, in Poland and Ukraine, but then also the assimilated bourgeois Jews of Vienna. And he was able to sort of move between those different worlds. And so I think that this sort of multicultural idea of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and his was also formative in imagining Israel as also binational. And that feeds into his principal idea of, you know, kind of a community as a dialogical community that's open to the encounter of others. And and of course, that other in the context of Israel would be primarily Arabs. Buber saw the Jewish people as having a unique responsibility in the world. And all of his work revolved around questions of how to be fully Jewish in order to be fully committed to this ethical responsibility that Jews uniquely have in the world. So if this was Buber's worldview, what exactly did Buber argue was the imperative for Jews in the world? What does this unique responsibility look like, according to Buber? Buber understood his, his, his form of, let's call it utopic Zionism, as inseparable from religion and from religiosity. And, and specifically from Judaism. So in that sense, yes, we could see it as a religious Zionism. On the other hand, his conception of a religious community or religiosity was uh, very humanistic and quite open. He's really one of the first thinkers who really promoted what we would now call today interfaith dialogue, and the idea that part of this dialogical movement, almost the dialogical cosmopolitan mission of Israel um, as a nation is to foster this kind of dialogical encounter with other nations. Not all Zionist intellectuals had Judaism at the core of their thinking about Jewish political life and Jewish sovereignty in the form of statehood. Many of these intellectuals were secular. Lots were socialists. Some thought about Jewishness, but not Judaism. Buber Zionism was bound up in his understanding of Judaism, the Jewish spirit, questions of renewing and invigorating the Jewish people. So what did that mean? Is his Zionism religious? How do we understand the interplay between religion and Zionism in Buber's thinking? He's clearly not a religious Zionist in the sense of return to orthodoxy uh, or return to a kind of conservatism. On the other hand, he doesn't want to uh, have Judaism to be completely uh, assimilated into Western culture. And of course, this is the great 
fine line that many Jewish thinkers in the 20th century are navigating, the rejection of assimilation into Christianized Western culture without returning to a kind of orthodoxy, anti-modernism. And I think he's trying to square that circle, if you wish, or trying to, on the one hand, return to the indigenous spirituality of Judaism, but on the other hand, reject assimilation to, let's call it, Western Christianized culture. If dialogue and dialogical relations are so central to Buber's understanding of what it means to engage in human relations and to move past the objectifying and demeaning forms of perceiving and treating the other, what did that look like in Buber's own life? Who was Buber in dialogue with? How did he practice this way of being in relations with others? He himself was constantly engaged in entering into dialogue with other uh, intellectuals and writers and, and figures of the time. And, and one of those is Gandhi, where Gandhi is sort of asked to share his view and, and give his support for the idea of forming the state of Israel and to explore the analogy or the same condition in Gandhi's attempt to establish uh, independence and liberation from British colonialism, that there would be almost an elective affinity between Gandhi's attempts to overthrow British imperialism and colonialism for India and the cause of Zionism. So Gandhi, just on the eve of the Second World War in 1939, was sort of asked whether he supported Zionism and especially whether he saw an analogy between the plight of the Jewish populations in Germany who were you know, being persecuted uh, right on the eve of the Holocaust and the, the, the plight of uh, Indians. So he writes sort of what we would call today kind of an op-ed piece in which to the surprise of many who had sort of thought that Gandhi would support Zionism. Instead, he sort of argues that Jews in Germany should practice a kind of nonviolence and resist as much as possible the persecution and, and oppression of, of German official and state-sponsored anti-Semitism. And then his view of the state of Israel that's about to be established. Gandhi expresses sympathy and support for the Arabs for the Palestinian population, and basically writes in this piece, this essay, the Jews have no right to sort of return and reclaim this land. It was very clear that he wasn't supporting the Zionist project of reclaiming and returning and starting an independent state of Israel. So Buber writes a, a quite extended letter. That letter almost exemplifies what dialogue is going to be about for Buber, that the aim of dialogue is not we arrive at a common viewpoint, partly because I think for Buber there is no end to a dialogue. I mean, the dialogue is sort of this infinite task that we're constantly being challenged to. So what's quite striking is on the one hand, really a kind of humility towards Gandhi, because Gandhi also has this sort of status as, as a moral conscience, as a spiritual figure. But also at the same time, him not being Jewish, uh, him not having been exposed, as Buber was in Germany, uh, to the persecution and the official anti-Semitism of Germany, which of course predated the, the Nazis. And so one of the things that Buber insists against Gandhi, but in dialogue with Gandhi, is to affirm really the, the centrality of land and having a place in the world uh, for the Jewish people. 
But I think that the point that Buber wants to say is that on the one hand, the Jews have a kind of right to return to the land from which they were driven. But then he reiterates two things. One is the, the, the symbolic significance of the land is not political, but religious. So again, he always wants to sort of de-emphasize that the homeland for the Jewish people is primarily a political project. And in Buber's vocabulary, it's not the attempt to establish a state that then exercises power. It's instead that there needs to be a land in order to establish a community and therefore a state for a certain form of life to be possible. And that form of life is the Jewish form of life, uh, a, a new form of community where for the first time the Jews will have their own land and be able to have a sense of being at home um, with each other, most importantly with God. But then the other point that he emphasizes in his response to Gandhi is the binational aspect, that this new homeland for the Jewish people will be a new experiment for human beings to create a dialogical community where it would only seem that enmity is possible. So there's a kind of suggestion that precisely what makes the product of Zionism so imperative in the world is that it's going to try to create something that seems to be impossible. How to take two populations that seem to be completely unreconcilable with each other and nonetheless be able to live together. That's his response to Gandhi, in a sense, almost to say this is a kind of radical experiment. The way in which the Jewish nation can fulfill God's commandment and, and fulfill the covenant between the Jewish people and God is to return to a land in order then to, if you wish, begin the work of repairing the world. And, and part of that repairing the world would be to create this, you know, sort of new form of community in which then Arabs would have the same rights. I mean, kind of a, you know, egalitarianism of recognition and dialogue. Uh, of course, always under the assumption that this would be still the state of Israel. That, that's what the state of Israel should aspire to be. And that means that openness to Arab populations, um, Arab cultures is going to be central for that. Now, that's, of course, quite different from Zionism. That was a pure political project. So it sort of downplays the importance of uh, Israel as a means to allow Judaism as a religion itself to be reborn. And then the other extreme would precisely be a form of Zionism that was exclusively about Judaism. So it would allow Judaism to return to a certain kind of purity or a certain kind of orthodoxy that would always be exclusive. So I think those are the two extremes in, in which then Buber is sort of navigating. What did Buber have in mind when he wrote about Judaism being reborn? How did he see this as bound up in Zionism? What's at stake in debates about Zionism is the possibility of renewal, both renewal and return. So the idea is how do we renew um, and affirm what it is to be Jewish culturally, intellectually, spiritually, not just as individuals, but as a community. And that question is going to be uh, inseparable from the question of return. How do we return to being a Jew, uh, to Judaism? And so that that's part of the um, nexus of, of questions that animate the Jewish Renaissance that begins 
in Central Europe, I mean, in Prague, in Vienna, just before the First World War. And of course, Zionism is part of this broader landscape of early 20th century Jewish Renaissance in the arts, etc. And there, the, the basic question is a kind of an existential question, what form of life is Judaism? So what does it mean to be a Jew in the sense of what kind of life is the life of, of being Jewish? How can we become an unhyphenated Jew? Because the Jew has always been a hyphenated being. You are Jewish and German, or you are Jewish or German, or you are Jewish and this, and Christian and Western, etc. This is really central for Buber from the beginning of Buber's sort of intellectual itinerary. And there, of course, it's also inseparable from Buber's critique of the modern world, that increasingly the modern world is one of secularization where it becomes impossible to lead a, a life that is religious, and that's connected to the disintegration of community, a sense of living with others. Nicholas talks about living with others in the modern world. In the modern world, the formation of group identity has as its corollary the boundaries and barriers that are erected which closes off to seeing the other and knowing the other. Forming community can, in some instances, become an exercise in collective chauvinism. It can become the basis for hierarchies, prejudices, fear, and animosity. Yet for Buber, this was not the case. For all the time that he spent residing within a Jewish intellectual and spiritual setting, and for all of his concerns with Jewish renewal, he was not chauvinistic in his understanding of Jews in relations to others. How did Buber reconcile his desire to bring about Jewish renewal with his ability to encounter the other as fully human and deserving of dignity, respect, and compassion? Buber has this sense that every human being whom we encounter in a genuine dialogical situation where the other is now not the person I want to possess, not the person who's in my power, but the person who dispossesses me of my own attempt to establish power, uh, who I'm beholden to, um, that, that God or the eternal thou is always manifest in the face of the other. So that's the sense in which it opens up the Jewish experience to other religions insofar that Buber's God isn't clearly the Jewish God, only insofar that we human beings are successful at living with others in these genuine dialogical encounters, that somehow God's creation itself becomes fulfilled. So human beings have a hand, if you wish, in completing the creation of the world that God set into motion, because God himself is in a dialogical relationship with the world. But then constantly we're struggling against the ways in which institutions, ideology, and power is always, in a sense, forcing us to not encounter others. So what's interesting here is, from Buber's point of view, we rarely truly encounter others as others, because we always encounter them in sort of set pieces of encounter. I encounter you through a nation's identity, through, through a position in society, in the context of an institution. And what he always wanted to do was to sort of deformalize these sorts of relations. Buber passed away in the mid-1960s. He lived long enough to see the state of Israel come into existence. He also lived long enough to see his vision of a Jewish renewal not take shape in the ways that he described, 
he saw conditions between Jews and Arabs erode and worsen over time. Yet he continued to write, even as the infant state of Israel and as the Jewish-Israeli society that he came to know moved away from his principles. So who was he in the context of living in this young state of Israel? Was he somebody who was dismissed? Was he taken seriously by the power brokers in government and society? Buber was seen as a kind of moral figure, if you wish, a kind of moral conscience in all of the formative debates that are going on in Israel in sort of the young infancy of this new nation, not only with regard to, you know, sort of very specific political debates that are going on at the time, because Buber always understood himself as, as what we would call an intellectual. So he's constantly engaging and speaking to contemporary issues. So he's writing in newspapers, editorials, etc. So in this sense, I think that Buber is really one of the first Israeli public intellectuals who's trying to shape this reality that has just started, which is the state of Israel. But on the other hand, I think that within the context of Israeli cultural politics in the 50s and 60s, there's a sense in which also, for many, he was seen as a kind of outsider. Buber was sort of, you know, I think like Buber always wanted to be both inside and outside. So outside in the sense that he was always putting a perspective which may not always have been part of the status quo. His views were not always in the mainstream, and especially in the development of a strong national self-affirmation of Israel. When we think about Buber's legacy today, more than a half century after his death, and well over a hundred years since he published his first writings on philosophy, Judaism, and Zionism, what is his legacy? How are we to remember this man who believed in the infinite possibilities of the connections that can be made between man and man. Zionism, the Jewish nation, has a kind of special mission for him. And, and that's something which makes him very difficult to sort of place today. Because on the one hand, he thinks that the Jewish nation, Israel, has a special like world historical mission. So it seems very antiquated. Because no one thinks, you know, I mean, Buhr himself says all nations think that they're special and that they're elected but for the wrong reasons, because they think they're elected in order to advance themselves, their own power, their American identity, their Russian identity, their influence, etc. But what characterizes Judaism as a people is that they have been elected, but they have been elected in order to fulfill a certain spiritual promise in the covenant between God and human beings. And that is, in a sense, to repair the world and, and bring about peace. And that's going to be done not abstractly, but through the formation of communities, um, communities in which the degree of dialogical coexistence is maintained, and that Israel was going to be, in a sense, one small step in that direction. Buber is very influential for what we would call today interfaith dialogues between religions, uh, not only between Judaism and Christianity, but Judaism and Islam and Muslims and Arabs and Palestinians. So I think any attempts in Israel today or people who are sort of committed to solving this, this sort of intractable problem, can there be peace in Israel? Peace would only come about from the ground up. So in a sense, it wouldn't be a political solution. What needs is the formation of interdialogical encounters between Arabs, Palestinians, uh, and Jews 
in which then they are able to form these new communities of encounter. And so I think that's sort of the Buberian idea that if there is a solution to what seems to be without solution, it would have to take this path. A number of years ago, there was this um, Palestinian-Israeli orchestra, you know, this idea that we're going to get musicians, Palestinian young musicians, Israeli young munitions, we're going to have an orchestra together. That's a very Buberian idea, right, that it's through some sort of cultural, spiritual activity, in this case music, that we form community. Well, in a sense, insofar that human life is fundamentally about encounters, then Buber's thinking is precisely an encounter with thinking about what it is to encounter others. On the one hand, a tremendous difficulty in encountering others, and therefore that we should never take for granted that just because I speak to someone doesn't mean that I've encountered them. And then on the other hand, why then thinking about what it would mean to encounter someone would nonetheless be central for our own self-realization. So in, you know, in Buber's language, I'm only really real. I only really exist insofar that I really encounter others. And so I think that's what's really striking about Buber is what seems to be so straightforward to stand up and speak to someone is in a sense the thing that we're least able to do. Special thanks to Nicholas DeWarren. It was a real treat talking to you. If you're interested in learning more about his work, Nicholas is the author most recently of the book Original Forgiveness, which is about the primacy of forgiveness in human existence. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision as well as mixing and mastering joint conversation. To learn more about Nico's work as a composer, visit nicorivers.com. And to learn about his work in film and audio production, visit auraformaudio.com. That's A-U-R-A-F-O-R-M audio.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And to learn more about his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website designed by Jacob Lazaro. Our episodes feature music by the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. The group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. We also feature the music of Ezekiel's Wheels. Thanks to the band and Abigail Reisman for making this happen. Learn more about Ezekiel's Wheels at ewklezmer.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available for creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy in Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and by visiting our website, joyinconversationpodcast.com. And remember, Joy in Conversation is still independent, but it's now the audio experience for Project Mosaics an education nonprofit dedicated to promoting humanities education that elevates and centers Jewish histories, cultures, arts, and identities through the creation of digital multimedia content in order to illuminate the plurality of Jewish voices from around the world in classrooms right here at home. Consider donating to Project Mosaics to help us create content for teachers and students that is multicultural and culturally affirming. Support Project Mosaics and help us connect the pieces of Jewish history. Bashufiku. We'll see you next time.